0: This morning, this is going to be a topical message. We're not going to turn to a certain passage and do an exposition this morning, though that's our general practice. Um, Frankly, it's not even a message I want to preach. Nobody's in trouble. Uh, All they care about is money. Have you heard that? All they care about is money. And in some churches, you would be right on tele-evangelists, false teachers. The church has a bad reputation when it comes to money, right? The church has a bad reputation when it comes to money. There's people who have, and maybe you're in this boat, you've experienced high-pressure offerings, you've experienced guilt, you've experienced people trying to make you feel obligated to give money. Calvary Baptist Church, I hope you've learned in your time here that we're not that kind of church. In fact, you may be struck by the fact we don't even take up an offering. Uh, part of that is not because we're not dependent upon giving. It's because you know technology is such, people can send money. And I just don't like the idea of a plate being passed. Uh, if I'm sitting where you're sitting, I don't like a plate being stuck in front of my face. Uh, that's awkward, and I don't want anybody to feel that way. I think that when it, we see biblically, as we're going to see in a moment, uh, what attitude we should be giving in... Sticking a plate in somebody's face, I think, violates some of that. So uh, so we don't even take up an offering formally on a Sunday morning. But you've heard high-pressure, guilt-ridden approaches to giving. You've also heard false teaching, like if you give a certain amount, you may experience financial breakthrough. By the way, just a little tip here. If you're listening to a teacher and you hear that term breakthrough, or if you're listening to a song and you hear the lyrics breakthrough... That's a little signal about a theology that's undergirding that teaching or that music that you might want to be concerned about, okay? Uh, but you've heard things like financial breakthrough. You know, call at 711 and give $711 because of verse, chapter 7, verse 11. You ever heard these types of things? Uh, give a certain amount to a certain preacher at a certain time based upon a certain verse, you'll have financial breakthrough. Worse yet, uh, many of those who teach this way, are wearing $1,000 suits, living in million-dollar homes. They need a private jet to spread the gospel. Obscene jewelry, luxury cars. And some of those, the amount of money he spent on his fancy watch, she spent on her makeup, right? Uh, You've seen folks that are like this, preachers. And they've given the church a bad rap when it comes to money. Believers and unbelievers alike are right to criticize that approach, right? At Calvary Baptist Church, we reject high-pressure offerings. We obviously reject the mismanagement of funds, the hoarding of money by any church or any preacher. More importantly, God rejects it as well, as we're going to see. And so we're going to talk about giving this morning, uh, not money in general. We're going to talk about giving and really what role that plays in a Christian's life. If you're a visitor with us this morning, this is not really for you, right? I'm glad you're here. You can learn. Not really for you, uh, if you're a visitor with us this morning. Um, this is for us as church attenders, those committed to Calvary Baptist Church, that uh, what role does giving play in our lives? Uh, What attitude ought we to have to our money? What attitude ought we to have to giving? What is the purpose of giving? That's our purpose this morning. Paul established the fact that preachers or teachers uh, ought to have a correct relationship to money and that they ought not to be lovers of money when he wrote to Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor in Ephesus, and in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul told Timothy that as you pastor there in Ephesus and as you really operate as my emissary and appoint leadership in various churches in Ephesus, uh, I want you to look for men who have this character. And this character is both positive and negative. And I want you to listen to what he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And he chooses in that relatively small list to include not a lover of money. Not a lover of money. Now, as we're going to see in a moment, contrary to popular belief, the Bible doesn't teach that money is the root of all evil. It teaches that the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. That is a uh, character flaw which is disqualifying. It is disqualifying disqualifying from spiritual leadership. Why? Because uh, Jesus himself said that you cannot serve God and money. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, and minds, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. and a love for money competes with that love. And so you had a rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and Jesus uh, correctly pointed out that this man could not follow Jesus as long as he had a competing God in his life, which was his money. Spiritual leadership must not love money. Paul continues in speaking to Timothy, uh, returning to the topic of money and contentment into and materialism in 1 Timothy 6, and he says this, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, with contentment. For well, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. In other words, I mean, you've heard, you've heard the old line, right? You never see a hearse pulling a, a U-Haul, right? You can't take it with you. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Why? Because you want to be rich among, uh, above all other things, and so what are you willing to do to be rich? Who are you willing to be in order to get rich? And so when money takes priority, there's all sorts of other moral ills that follow. And so those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many, many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? He continues, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, here's the contrast, Timothy, flee these things, flee these things. And with the same energy that you flee these things, pursue what? Righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. There's no room in the character of a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary or an elder or a deacon for the love of money. Man's self-driven lust for money is so intense that Paul says that it actually can lead him away from the faith, can lead him away from the faith. There's no... Now, you're all comfortable so far, right? That's comfortable because the barrel at this point is targeting me, <laughs> it's targeting Jared, it's targeting anybody who would be a spiritual leader. But let me suggest something to you. This is We're talking about equality this morning, right? Uh, how about the person who says they only care about money and sometimes they're rights, depending on the church they're referring to, but sometimes that refrain can be used to protect one's own lust for money. Get your hands off my money, right? And what does that to betray? Well, that might betray the fact that that person who's using that as an excuse for rejecting church or whatever it may be, himself has a love for money. Don't touch my idol, right? So the lust for money can cut both ways. It tempts churches to use unbiblical means to solicit funds. Uh, you know, sometimes you hear about people saying, you know, the church should not be tax-exempt. Have you heard that? You hear it more and more, right? The church should have to—did The church. Did you know that churches don't pay taxes? Uh, and sometimes when I see the multi-million dollar buildings, and I see the pastors living the extravagant lives, and I see them having private jets <laughs> and so on, I say, yeah, they should be paying taxes, <laughs> right? Living in luxury, Uh it cuts both ways, however. It tempts churches to use unbiblical means to solicit funds. It tempts believers to use unbiblical excuses to justify their own lust for money. Jesus said a lot about money. Again, I've already referenced it, but he said you can't serve God and money. In Ephesians, Paul said he really linked covetousness. He he linked it with a list of all other, uh, the worst of sins. In fact, he said that those who are covetous will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Luke 16, we're told that the Pharisees were lovers of money, lovers of money. And so the fact that some churches and preachers have failed to teach on financial giving from a biblical perspective really leaves the rest of us at a disadvantage. In fact, if you've been coming here for six months, you've never heard a sermon on giving. If you've been coming here for a year, you may have never heard a sermon on giving. If you did the Membership Matters book, you would have seen a couple lessons on giving, but it's not something we emphasize. However, there's things like this that I'd rather not teach on giving, but it's something... There's, I'll tell you why in a moment, why it's come up at this moment. But uh, as far as a faithfulness to preach the whole counsel of God and equipping the church to be what it ought to be, we've got to teach on giving, right? The reason why it's come up now, however, is because recently we have made multiple appeals for giving, and you've been very generous. Uh, we've asked, uh, sought uh, uh, contributions to help out those who are needy among us, kind of like a benevolence fund. Uh, and we've started to talk about missions. And so last week we had a visitor from the Milo Pregnancy Center and Clinic here. And uh, we've been sending money to a church in India as well. And uh, what I want to do today is I want to think about giving so that when we approach things like missions or we approach things like benevolence, uh, we have a right attitude about them, right? And so that's our purpose this morning. And so with that in mind... Let's take a few minutes just to think about some of the practical purposes of giving. Very practical message this morning. Why should we give? Well, there's a few reasons. You understand that Calvary Baptist Church, and just about every local church, is fully dependent upon the offerings taken from its congregants. That is, there is no other source of income for Calvary Baptist Church other than your giving. And so, if we are going to support leadership or supply the needs of those who are in need or sustain our worship or spread the gospel, uh, all of the finances for that come from us. It all comes from us. And so, let's examine some of these priorities. We're going to look primarily at how giving or offering from congregants supports leadership and supplies the needs of the less fortunate and sustains worship and spreads the gospel. Okay? In regards to the support of leadership, and so we'll get the most awkward one out of the way at the beginning, uh, in support of leadership, it's amazing that the Apostle Paul, in his missionary endeavors, in every church that he went to, he really insisted upon working a job along with his ministry work. And so he was a tent maker, he was a leather worker, and so he would always labor so that he could bring in income so that he was not dependent upon churches, Right? And you say, yes, that's the way it ought to be, right? And so I deliver mail. I don't know how to do anything with leather, but I deliver mail. And you say, that's the way it ought to be. There you go, Pastor Rick. Be like the Apostle Paul. You want to be like Paul? Just keep working, right? Uh, but at the same time that the Apostle Paul worked, and 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 he did it for very explicit reasons. He didn't want anybody to be able to say, uh, oh, you're dependent upon us. Or he didn't want anybody to say, you're in it for the money. But you know what? That didn't stop his detractors. That didn't stop his detractors. Even though he worked and he labored a secular job while ministering to them, he still got accused of just being in it for the money. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he has to address some of these accusations. Now, I want you to listen carefully to what he says, because there's incredible principles here. But what we're going to see is that the Apostle Paul, even though he would... Uh, insist upon working, at the same time he vehemently defended the right of a pastor to be paid. Interesting. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord? That's interesting, isn't it? They're being accused. Why are you bringing your wife along with you? You're just multiplying your expenses. Right? Or maybe they're being accused of being in it for some illicit reasons. Uh, He continues. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? You're going to hold us to an unrealistic standard? Barnabas and I have to work while others uh, you're willing to finance? And then he gives us some principles. (coughs) Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads up the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so Paul is playing both sides of this thing where he's defending the principle that those who labor in spiritual things should be provided for financially, while at the same time saying, now we're not taking advantage of this. But the reason he's not taking advantage of this is because of their immaturity. If we were to be paid by you, we're going to face all kinds of accusations. It's going to become a stumbling block. And so we're just going to keep working. And then he even goes back then to talk about those who are employed in temple service and goes back and defends the right for those who are employed in spiritual service to get compensated for that spiritual service. And so he says leaders in the church have a right to refrain from working. And you could say maybe like a secular job and to be paid uh, as a minister, and then he gives examples. A soldier doesn't pay his own expenses, and so really an elder uh, doesn't necessarily, shouldn't necessarily be put in place to pay for his own expenses. A farmer labors with what? Some hope that the, some of the crop he's going to benefit from. And so, too, one who labors in spiritual things can labor, understanding that uh, there will be some material benefit as well as spiritual benefits. In fact, God establishes this principle when he says, you shall not muzzle an ox that treads out the grain, right? What's the idea there? you got an ox that is uh, walking around in a circle and he's he's pulling that giant stone that's crushing the grain or uh, he's walking upon the grain, whatever it is. And it says, don't muzzle him. If he wants to stop and eat some of that grain, let him eat the grain. He's, he's, I mean, he's, he's laboring, so let him benefit from his labor. And you know what that's going to do? That's going to help keep him going. It's going to help keep him going. And so that's the principle. So according to Paul, spiritual labors can produce material reward along with spiritual reward, and that's okay. In fact, he uses the R word. He says it's a right. He says it's a right. We, he says, have not taken advantage of this right. And so Paul reaffirmed that principle again, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. And so that's it. Supporting leadership, uh, the giving of the church, um, uh, serves that purpose. uh, Simply supporting leadership financially. And it's a principle that those who serve in spiritual things uh, should be able to concentrate and give themselves over to spiritual priorities, not necessarily distracted uh, by making a financial living outside of ministry. That's all I want to say about that. Moving on. We are called to give to support leadership. We're also called to give in order to supply the needs of the suffering, to supply the needs of the suffering. If you read the Apostle Paul and you read 2 Corinthians, what you're going to realize is that much of Paul's third missionary journey was driven by this priority. He was traveling from Gentile church to Gentile church to Gentile church collecting money. To send back to Jerusalem in order to alleviate the suffering of the Jewish Christians there who are experiencing famine. And so uh, in his writing, especially 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we find uh, Paul revisiting the Corinthians saying, listen, you promised some time ago to give this money, so step up and do it. Carry through with it. And it's an awesome couple chapters to give us principles on giving, New Testament giving for the church. And uh because he cites other examples of the Macedonians and so on. And so this was a priority for Paul, to the point where he's willing to go on a journey collecting money in order to alleviate suffering. And so he gives us principles for the churches. Hey, this is the attitude with which you should give. This is how much you should give even. We're going to look at some of that. The Apostle John said this in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And so we're called to give. I mean, that's the early church in Acts chapter 2, when it says that they were baptized, they joined together, and they continued together in the fellowship and the breaking of bread and so on. And what does it say? It says they actually sold what they had, and they kind of pooled that together so that nobody went without. Now, that was a unique situation. Nobody's asking anybody here to sell land, okay? Um, but... The point was, they understood and felt an obligation to care for one another's needs. And so you've seen multiple appeals go out recently where we said, hey, there's a couple in need, there's a family in need. Would you be willing to contribute towards that? And you've stepped up and you've done that. So this is not in any way saying, hey, everybody, we we're disappointed, and so we need to teach. No, you've done that, and you've stepped up, and you've shown that generosity. And that's the overflow of the Holy Spirit, which gives us a care for one another, right? But that's one of the reasons we must give. Support leadership, supply the needs, next of all, sustain worship and spread the gospel, simply saying the lights are only on because somebody contributed, right? One day, if you contribute enough, we could actually get a proper heating system and it won't be so hot in here all the time, right? That's the real reason for this message. The lights are only on. We can only meet here. We only have this property. We can only sustain worship because of your giving, right? Because of our giving. And, and then the spread of the gospel, the Great Commission. We talk about uh, whether it be distributing literature, whether it be reaching out to the community, or whether it be missions. All of that is funded by our collective giving. Now, having considered a few practical purposes, we're going to look at some principles that then should guide our giving. Maybe you don't need what we've already said and said, you know what, I'm, you know, yeah, we ought to give. Right? We, but, but how do you determine what to give? How do you determine how much? What principles guide that? That's what we're going to look at through, for the remainder of our time. And so principles which guide our giving. First of all is the principle of sovereignty, the principle of sovereignty. Who owns your money? Who does it belong to? It doesn't belong to me, and it doesn't belong to you. The Bible says in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens, and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Psalm 50, verse 12 says, "If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine." First Corinthians 10:26, "For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof; it all belongs to God." Right? You say, "No, this is mine. I worked hard for this. I mean, I got the receipts. I put in, uh, you know, uh, 40 hours a week, whatever it is, and I've worked, sweat on my brow. It's all mine." Deuteronomy 8: Beware, lest you say in your heart, "My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth." You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day, saying he gives you the breath, he gives you the strength, he gives you the job, he gives you the opportunity. What is this? This is the principle of sovereignty, the principle of sovereignty. It all belongs to God anyway, right? How much should I give? Well, I mean, it all belongs to him. And so we don't give what belongs to God Right? We give some amount of what he has given us back to him in recognition that it all belongs to him. That's the principle of sovereignty. Next of all, the principle of stewardship. The principle of stewardship. If it all belongs to God to start with, your bank account, your investments, your home, it all belongs to him. You belong to him. We're bought with a price, right? Uh, If it all belongs to him, then that means we are simply what? We're just stewards. We're stewards. We're managers of what belongs to God. And so the principle of sovereignty goes hand in hand with the principle of stewardship. He's sovereign, we're stewards. A steward is a person who acts as the surrogate of another or others, especially by managing property or financial affairs. That's a steward. The Bible uses the picture of steward uh, to describe the Christian life. In fact, Jesus used in Matthew 25 the picture of a steward to describe the entire kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 25, and this is a longer passage, if you want to look at it, and turn there you can, but Jesus uses and couches the entire Christian life in that context of a master and a steward. The idea being that Jesus is saying, like a master who goes off to a far country and leaves his servants behind to manage his affairs, that's what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus has resurrected, he's ascended to the Father. The church now remains here awaiting his return. And in the meantime, while we await his return, we are simply managers or stewards of all that he's given us. And this goes far beyond money, right? Now, the analogy he gives in Matthew 25, and I'm going to read it in a second, starting in verse 14, the analogy here does do with talents, which is money, but it is an analogy. The point is, it's not just about money, it's about all of our resources. It's about all of all of we are, all that we are, our time and our treasure and our abilities and so on. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to him to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. His master said to him, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master.' He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, "'Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours.' But his master answered him, "'You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed.' Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that's a hard, that's a hard one. What's the idea here? That God, by his grace, has entrusted each of us with something. Finances, yeah, but ability. Talents, time, treasure, all of it. All that we have, God has entrusted us, and we all have been entrusted with maybe different degrees. You have different abilities than I have. You have greater capabilities than I have. You can produce more with what you have than I can produce with what I have, potentially. And so you can bring forth more fruit than what I can bring forth, potentially. But we're all going to be accountable for that which with with which we have been entrusted. If God has given us much, then really there ought to be uh, much in return. And so we're going to give an account for that. And so Jesus uses this analogy to say, listen, we're all stewards here. You're all stewards. And so get to work. Do as much as you can with what God has given you, producing as much fruit as you can while you await his return. And so he presents us as stewards. A good steward is faithful. He's faithful. He's been entrusted with the master's uh, uh, property, with this substance. And the expectation is that you're going to be busy about bringing the best return of investment for your master, right? And so Paul says clearly in 1 Corinthians 4.12, this is in the context of the mysteries of God, but it's still a principle that stands. Moreover, it is required of a steward that a man be found trustworthy. Trustworthy. And so don't take what God has given you and squander it. God's entrusted you with much, and so you use it for your own self-glory? God's given me much, so I use it for my own uh, self-aggrandizement or my own self-enrichment? That's not the point. God has entrusted us much that really belongs to Him, and He's saying, use it as a steward for my glory and for my purposes and for my priorities. That's what a faithful steward does. That's what makes Him a steward and not an owner. But most of us, I think, take everything that we have and we treat it as if we are owner and not steward. I mean, is this about me? What's going to make my life easier? Uh, how can I promote myself? Uh, how can I enrich myself? Uh, how can I have a little bit more comfortable lifestyle for me? That's the attitude of an owner, not a steward. A steward is faithful. A steward is wise. He says to this unfaithful steward who goes and just buries his money, oh, yeah, what you wanted is over. does not even go and get it for him. What you have is over there. Jesus says in this analogy, the idea, take it and at least bring it to the bank. At least make some interest on it. I mean, be wise with what you have to bring some type of return. A, faithful, a, a good steward is faithful and a good steward is wise. Also, a good steward is accountable. There's going to be an accounting. What did you do with that with which I have entrusted you? What fruit did you bring about with what I have given you? And again, far beyond money. This is your ability to communicate. So teach. This is that spiritual gift of mercy, and so exercise it. That gift of encouragement, so use it. Uh, Whatever it is God has given you by His grace, use it, and you're going to get an account for it. Listen, by my grace, this is what I've given you. And the Bible says we've all been given a measure of God's grace for the common good. And so what have you done with it? There's going to be an accounting. That's the point of Jesus' analogy or his parable here. And so we see the principle of sovereignty. We see the principle of stewardship. Why is he talking so fast? Because I have 19 pages, that's why, and I'm only halfway through. Sovereignty. Wow, Rick, you said you didn't want to preach it. You got 19 pages. Okay. Well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. Uh, Sovereignty, stewardship, sowing, the principle of sowing. Now, some of you are going to accuse me of the prosperity gospel here. We'll explain it in a minute. Okay. Again, back to 2 Corinthians 9, the context here being Paul talking to the Corinthians about collecting an offering to send to the poor churches in Jerusalem. Poor believers in Jerusalem. So he's talking about giving in this context. And he teaches them the principle of sowing, 2 Corinthians 9.6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The picture being that of a farmer. You want to have a, 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 a bountiful crop? You probably want to plant more than a handful of seeds. Pretty axiomatic, right? Likewise, the Christian who gives liberally will benefit from many spiritual rewards. And again, this goes beyond money, even though the actual context of 2 Corinthians 9 is money. But it does go beyond money as well. The more you invest into the kingdom of God, whether it be your time or your efforts or your encouragement of others, the more likely you are to see them multiplied and to see fruit, right? Pretty axiomatic, pretty basic principle. Now, I'm going to scare some of you with this next verse, but just hang in there, okay? Malachi 3.10 Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessings until there's no more need. He's, he's accusing legitimately the Jews in Malachi's day who were not tithing. They were not giving what they ought to have been giving, what they were legally obligated to give under the Old Testament law. And God says, do it. You're hanging on to it because you think, oh, no, I can't afford to give this money. And he says, well, hey, try me. Give. And what he's going to show them is, I would supply your need if you would give. Now, I said I might scare you. Understand, I'm not using that because I believe that the Old Testament legalistic tithe applies to the church, because I don't. Some of you may disagree with me, and that's fine. I don't believe the Old Testament tithe applies to the church. Uh, The Old Testament system was a a theocracy, and so they're... taxation system and uh, their religious giving were mixed together. And so they supported the festivals and they supported the Levites and they supported the temple and the welfare system was all uh, combined then together as national tax along with their religious giving, and it was all together. And so they gave probably 35% of their income in tithing. In fact, did you you recognize this, that even the early Jewish believers in the New Testament, uh, these early Christians would have continued to tithe? They would have continued to tithe not to the church, they didn't say hey all this money I was giving to the government through tax or to the uh, religious uh, governments supporting the temple and so on now I'm going to take it away from there and then bring it to the gathering of believers that's not what happened they continued giving their taxation as well as giving over and above to the church and that's how sacrificial this would have been for those early Christians giving Roman taxes yes supplying also the needs of the, the- theocratic system and then giving to the church so I don't believe that the tithe is mandatory for Christians. I think that's bad hermeneutic, actually, to apply that to the church. However, the principle remains. So Proverbs 11.24 says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want." And so that just puts the lie to the idea that if I'm to give financially, well, then I'm going to give myself into poverty. And but God is saying it doesn't work that way. Like hoarding is not the answer. And so there is promises there of God's provision. So I said, is that the prosperity gospel? Sow the seed, right? You've heard this, some of your backgrounds, some of the churches that you've been exposed to. Sow the seed. And you hear that language a lot. And uh, why? Because you're going to sow that seed and then God's going to bring an abundant harvest and it's a get rich quick scheme, right? That's what that type of approach is. And what it does is it actually appeals to, to the lust of money in us, right? So I got a scheme for you. You give this amount of money to this preacher, and then all of a sudden you're going to get a check in the mail. You know, some of those systems too, what they do is they'll have some, it's like a lottery. They'll have like some certain viewer of their religious program that suddenly will be delivered to Cadillac, <laughs> or suddenly will get a check in the mail. It's like the lottery system, which is also a scam. And so you win the lottery, and then they put your picture online or in the newspaper and say, see this winner. And you say, oh, see, somebody out there is winning, even though the odds are infinitesimals, whatever that word is, very small. Uh, And so, uh, but that gives you the encouragement. Yes, I'm going to do that too, because that could be me. Well, some of these uh, uh, greedy, get rich scheme, uh, prosperity preachers do the exact same thing with their followers. And uh, that's all it is, is lust in the teacher and is lust in the listener. And so the thought is that if I sow this seed, then maybe I could Win the lottery. But that's not what we're talking about here. What God honors and promises to bless is giving which is done with a sincere heart. Selfless motivation, sacrificial spirit, a desire to see the kingdom of God ad- advance, not to see the individual enriched. The genuine giver desires those things far more than he desires material gain. His motivation for giving is not potential monetary return on investments. But rather, they're reaping us spiritual blessings in fruit. And so the motivation is never that you might get in return. But rather, God's kingdom could be advanced as a result. And so this, the principle of sowing, yeah, I mean, it's just practical. You see this everywhere in life. The more effort you put in is likely the more return you're going to get, right? I mean, that's just basics. And so the more attention we give to evangelism, the more likely we are to see fruit right? Uh, the more that we give and uh, put that those resources to work, the more likely we are to see results, right? Just a basic principle. So, we see the principle of sovereignty, the principle, principle of stewardship, the principle of sowing, and next of all, the principle of sincerity. Sincerity. Back to Second Corinthians 9, which is so instructive to us as Paul is preparing the Corinthian church to give an offering to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Second Corinthians 9.7, Paul says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, how much should you give? Whatever you decide in your heart. Pastor Rick, how much should you give? I don't know. That's between you and God and your own heart. 10%? Ah, if that's what you've decided in your heart. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly. Nobody should be giving under compulsion. Uh, Pastor Rick preached a message on, on giving, and now I really fear pressure to give money. Well, don't give. If that's your attitude. do not give, right? Why? God has made giving a matter of what? Not giving reluctantly, not giving under compulsion. Why? Why has he designed it this way? Because 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, for God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. The idea being that if you're giving reluctantly, you're not cheerful. If you're giving under compulsion, you're not cheerful. That's not what God wants. And so any preacher or church or ministry that makes you feel obligated or guilt you into giving is doing it wrong. I've actually heard preachers, however, take this approach. You must give this percentage, and God loves a cheerful giver, so do it cheerfully. So do it cheerfully. That's not what this is. What he's saying is it cannot be done reluctantly, it is not under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver and those things kill that joy right so it's sincere it's a matter of the heart the parallel in the old testament to new testament giving is not the tithe the parallel in the old testament to new testament giving are the free will offerings the free will offerings give cheerfully So we have a responsibility to ensure we're giving with a willing heart. We also have a responsibility to ensure that we never cause others to feel that they must give out of obligation. Either way, we're violating God's design for heartfelt giving. So that's the principle of sincerity. Next of all, the principle of supply. The Philippian church. Philippian church is one day we're going to get to Philippians. I started writing a Bible study book through Philippians and I never finished it and I want to get back to Philippians and finish it. One day we'll get to Philippians. Philippians is a wonderful book because Paul has such a love for the Philippian church and the Philippians love Paul, right? If you, if you go through 1st and 2nd Corinthians as like a palate cleanser, read Philippians, right? Because it's such a different relationship between Paul and the Philippian church versus the Corinthian church. The Philippian church loved Paul to the point where they actually, where the Corinthians are accusing Paul of being in it just for the money, and Paul having to work a job, the Philippians are sending gifts to Paul. And so the Philippian church sent some generous gift to Paul, and Paul writes to them, and he thanks them in Philippians chapter 4. He says this, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And that's interesting in and of itself. What Paul is saying is what you gave to me is actually an offering to the Lord. It's acceptable to him. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is an interesting principle. What he's saying is you have given and you have sacrificed and I have confidence that God is also going to supply your needs. Why? And again, this is not as we've already talked about, a prosperity-type approach that if I give, then that naturally means that God then is going to give to me. What it means, though, is that God is faithful and He provides our needs. He provides for our needs. And so as you sacrifice and have a godlike attitude towards others by helping supply their needs, you can be confident that God's going to supply your needs as well because He's a loving Father. Paul speaks to this principle again in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says to the Corinthians, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then he says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He connects those two things again. Give, God provides. God provides. And what he's trying to do there is to eliminate any... Attitude or idea that says, "I cannot let go of any of my financial resources because then I'm going to go without." Well, you're not trusting that the Lord provides for you, right? The Lord provides for you, and so that hoarder mentality says that money is my security and really money is my God, right? And what uh, what Paul is saying is encouraging us to say, "No, God is your God, and God is your provider, and find your security in Him." And so give to others with a godlike attitude and then have confidence that God is going to provide your needs. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through 8, we see in that small passage, we see what? We see what? The amount we should give? Bountifully. We see the attitude with which we should give? Willingly and cheerfully. And then in verse 8, we see God's answer to that type of giving, which is to make all grace abound. Sufficiency. So, the idea here is that if we give liberally and cheerfully, we're not to think that we're going to give ourselves into poverty. God will continue to provide our needs as we give. Why would God want to provide and supply the needs of a church that gives generously? Why would God continue to supply the needs of a church or an individual who gives generously? Because that individual or that church is acting as a conduit of God's grace and God's love and God's mercy. And so you know what? You're going to sow that seed, and God says, I'm going to keep providing you the seed because you keep sowing it. What happens, though, is we get sticky fingers, and we say, no, I'm not going to be a conduit. Which you're intending to be a conduit through me. Now I'm going to store, store away. And Jesus gives a parable that way too, right, about the man who has the barns. He has the tears down the barns, and he builds new ones, and he packs all of this stuff in there, and he kicks back, and he relaxes and says, all right, I'm good to go, and he just stops working. Those who are giving generously and are used by God as a conduit to supply the needs of others, God continues to provide for them so that they can provide for others. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You keep sowing that seed, I'm going to keep giving you seed to sow. I'm going to supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Again, back to Proverbs 11. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Again, that's just a general principle appealing to the character of God as our loving Father who provides for us. The problem is when we look at these principles and when it becomes like this perverse prosperity gospel type approach is when people look at this, it's kind of like Simon the sorcerer who saw um, the Holy Spirit granted to others. And he said, oh, I want that ability to give the Holy Spirit just by putting the hands on people. No, you completely miss the point of how this works. Some look at the verses like this and say, oh, and they look through it, that lens of lust and covetousness and say, here's some principles I can use to get rich because I have a promise here. If I just give, then God's going to give. That's not what this is about. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. God blesses generosity. God blesses generosity. Lastly, as we think about how to give or how much to give, we look at the principle of sacrifice. We'll go quickly because we're just about out of time. A couple examples here. We have the widow's mites. We have Jesus in the temple and sees a poor widow come up, and she just gives her last uh, few pennies there in the temple in Matthew 12. We won't read it for the sake of time. It's, it's a sad picture. It's also an endearing picture because what's happened is this woman may be under the false impression uh, that she must give her last few pennies in order to be right with God because she's under that Pharisaical system, and the Bible says clearly that the Pharisees were robbers of widows' houses. It may be that type of situation, But Jesus looks at this woman who gives the last bit that she has and he uses the occasion to give a lesson to his disciples and says, this woman has given more than anybody else. Even those who have given abundantly, she's given more. Why? Because she's done it out of the abundance of her own heart of worship. It was sacrificial. And so for her, she gave what she could and it wasn't much, but for her it was sacrifice and Jesus commended her for that, even though the system may have been broken. And so what do we learn from that? Well, if God gives you much, as a steward, you've been given five talents? Well, five is a good return. But if you've given five and you only return one, that's not a very good return on the investment that God has made in you. So if you are an individual whom God has blessed financially, with that God is entrusted with you more, and then what? Well, I think there's an expectation of a greater return, right? That's the idea. And so there's the picture of the widow. There's also the picture of the Macedonians. Back to Paul in the Corinthians, as Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to actually follow through with their commitment to give, he cites the example of the Macedonians. Now listen to this, 2 Corinthians 8.1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He relates all this as the expression of the grace of God. For in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. So awesome. The grace of God was in the Macedonians, so that they gave themselves to the Lord. They begged Paul. We don't have much, but we want to be a part of this. And it says that they begged us earnestly. Why? Because I'm sure Paul was saying, No. You don't need to give, right? You should be the recipients. You don't need to give. And they came back and said, no, we want to be a part of this. That's the right attitude of the preacher, and that's the right attitude of the church, right? Uh, the preacher shouldn't be looking at those who are going without and say, oh, you need to give. Paul was saying, don't give. Don't give. You don't need to give. They begged earnestly and said, but we want to give. We want to be a part. Why? Because it was worship. It was worship. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to others. They gave generously. And so there's some sacrifice there, right? And so that generally is the mark of spiritfulness in many areas as you overflow and sacrifice for others. So They went even beyond their means and ability. So that's an example. We've already referenced the early church. They sold their lands and houses, and they brought the proceeds together so that nobody went without unity, selflessness, no needs unmet, and so on. So where does that leave us? Well, conclusion, that's where it leaves us. Principles of sovereignty and stewardship and sowing and supply and sincerity and sacrifice. Uh, You know, I could get up here and say, y'all ought to give 10%. That'd be easy. That'd be a short sermon. Or I can get up and say, you know what, this is principle-based. What does the Bible teach us when it comes to principles regarding the heart? So let's think about the sovereignty of God. He owns everything. Everything we have, our bodies, our homes, the breath that we breathe gives us the ability to get wealth. And so giving then is not a matter of giving what is ours to God, but giving back to God a portion of what is already His, sovereignty. And then we could say, well, the principle of stewardship, since He is sovereign, we're simply stewards. We're managers. Everything we have, we're just managing. So be a faithful steward, understanding that there's going to be accountability. We have to be continually conscious of his concerns and his priorities and his interests because it's all his, and that's what a steward does. Practically speaking, then, where do you spend your money? How do you invest your money? How does the principle of stewardship come into play when you're trying to decide what to do with that, right? It might not be contribute to Calvary Baptist Church. It may be something else. But bottom line is we need to think about what would a steward do with God's money in this situation. Sovereignty, stewardship, and then sowing. You can't harvest a full field of grain if you only plant a couple seeds. If you want to multiply spiritual fruit, then put in more effort. Exert more energy. Contribute more financially, whatever it is. The more you put in, the more you get out, right? General principle. And then supply. God enjoys providing for those on whom he can count on to give liberally. Have you ever done this? I've done this in the past. Maybe you've done this. Have you ever seen a need that somebody had and you prayed, Lord, provide for me so I can provide for them? Somebody has a need, and he says, man, I wish I could help them, but I don't have the ability to help them. Uh, and so you pray, Lord, provide for me so that I can be a conduit to use that for others. I've seen that happen. By the way, if you live your life in such a way in the West here where you're always... What we generally do is just live just above our means. Some people live way above their means, but we generally live right at or just above our means so that we always feel strapped. If you want to kill your marriage? Be financially strapped, Right. Uh, we always feel financially strapped so that even if our heart says we want to help and want to contribute, we can't because we have arranged our finances in such a way where there's nothing available, right? Uh, but God enjoys providing for those on whom he can count on to give liberally. He supplies the needs of those who give sacrificially. Not a get-rich-quick scheme, but it's God's promise to us that when we give sacrificially and with the right attitude, we should not worry about giving ourselves into poverty. Sovereignty, stewardship, sowing, supply— sincerity above all that give however the holy spirit leads you in your heart to give right no obligation no compulsion no guilt okay and then sacrifice then sacrifice it seems to me that the pattern in the new testament actually the pattern throughout the whole bible even the old testament with the free will offerings remember when moses was collecting offering for the building of the tabernacle and he had to turn them away and say okay that's enough why it was free will and uh It seems to me that genuine, spirit-filled believers tend to uh, lean in the direction of, of real sacrifice when it comes to giving. Okay. So, practically speaking now. Last week we talked about the Milo Clinic and Pregnancy Center. And I suggested to you that this is a worthy ministry to support. And I think some of you, that's where your heart is. And that's one of the reasons we invited them in, because we've seen that heart in multiple people in our church and said, okay, we think that this is where the church is at. And I think that uh, Preeti did a good job of presenting the ministry last week. What we would like to do is support that ministry monthly. We've also put out appeals recently to support a church in India, Great Commission Baptist Church. And uh, Timothy and Pravalika uh, have come from that church in India. That's Timothy's dad, who's the pastor there. And so we have a close connection with the church there and access to that church. And so we'd like to, and some of you have given uh, as we put out appeals. What I don't want to do, though, is every month put out an appeal. Hey, we're giving money to the Indian church who would like to give. What we'd like to see at Calvary Baptist Church, we don't support any missionaries formally presently. And so what we're suggesting to you is that this local ministry with Milo and the church in India could be our first foray there into missions giving. And we've seen a heart for both of those ministries in the church already. And so what we'd like to do is to see us make some type of regular or formal commitment to give. And so we cannot make a formal commitment to give unless we know where your heart is and where you're at when it comes to giving. And then we've also put out appeals recently for benevolence funds. That is, inflation is hitting people, isn't it? And there are those who, for various reasons, have had financial issues. We put out multiple appeals to you. Would you be willing to give to alleviate the the needs of of others? And uh, so benevolence giving is also an issue. But what we're going to do very practically this morning is before you leave, and you don't have to do this now. I just blasted you with 50 minutes of teaching on giving. And so uh, maybe you want to wait till next week or something as you think and pray about these things. But before you go, over here there in that offering plate, there's some little three-by-five cards. And if you could, before you go, write something on there. If you've decided that you would like to give to Milo on a monthly basis, write on there how much you'd like to give and just put your name at the bottom, fold it up. Nobody's going to see it except for Jared. Uh, you put it in there, Okay. If you want to support the church in India as well. And so you kind of have a portfolio of of what you support when it comes to missions. Then uh, on that same card, you can write down India and write down a certain amount that you'd like to give monthly, uh, fold that up and put it in there, okay? What that's going to do for us is going to help us know how much the church should be contributing uh, to these ministries because it gives us a measure of where your heart is. And what's going to happen is next year, about the same time, we're going to do the same thing to see if your heart's still there, right? This is not an arbitrary decision, unilateral decision on the part of leadership this is, we want to see where your heart is, okay? And so before you go, if you could go over there and write on one of those three-by-five cards, Milo Pregnancy Center, India, one or both, whatever, so that we know where we stand and how, how much we can commit. And then that's also helpful for those ministries as well, right? And so I think that'll be a great opportunity to begin to start missions, right? So let's fulfill our responsibilities, I think, for the Great Commission when it comes to missions. Um, okay, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and its clarity. We thank you for the clear instructions and principles you give us. And Lord, I pray that nobody would leave here today feeling obligated, feeling guilty, feeling as if they're under compulsion to give. Uh, that would be a violation of scripture. And uh, Lord, we just pray your Holy Spirit would work. We know that uh, as people grow and as the Holy Spirit works, generally that overflows into sincerity and sacrifice. And uh, we pray that that'd be true here. So I pray you'd help us to be a generous people, help us to arrange our finances in a way where we have the freedom to be able to give to others and alleviate the suffering of others so that we're not constantly strapped ourselves. And uh, so help us to look at everything we have as stewards. And then, Lord, we just thank you this morning for Jesus Christ. I pray that nobody would go here today having only heard a message on giving, not understanding that the church of Jesus Christ is what it is, and we have a desire to sacrifice the way we do because of Jesus, because he first and foremost gave everything for us. And because he made himself poor and he made himself a sacrifice, so now we are called to also sacrifice for others. And so, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the community that he's built by his blood and through the example that he's given of self-sacrifice and help us now to live that out. And we pray that maybe, perhaps, by your mercy, you could even use a message on giving uh, to impress upon somebody their need for Jesus, a Savior and Lord. So we pray that you do that work in the hearts of people. Lord, we thank you for this, and I pray you bless these who give. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.